Well, welcome everyone to These Principles in Practice, a podcast by Leader. Today we are joined by Brian Miles, the uh, CEO and founder of Belay. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, would you start out by telling us a little bit about how you founded Belay? I'd love to hear your backstory. Yeah, you bet. So in early 2010, uh, my wife and I worked in really nice jobs and we had nice careers. I actually used to build churches, renovate churches for a church construction company. I was on their management team. Um, I had 10 guys that reported to me and um, I traveled a lot. Uh, so much so I was on six to eight flights a week, uh, rarely home. My kids were two and five at the time. Um, while it was an amazing job, I just kind of, I got to a place where I was exhausted. And at the same time, my wife was working for a Fortune 10 company of project management. She had been there for 10 years. And that spring in 2010, we went on vacation. And I just happened to snag a book that was an order book that I had had, and it was called Made in America. It's the story of Sam Walton, the guy that started Walmart. And I devoured that book over that vacation. And one of the things that really stood out to me was that Sam Walton created Walmart when he was 38 years old. And at the time, I was 35. And I thought, well, my gosh, you know, if he can start Walmart at 38, you know, why can't I try something? And, and you know, now, obviously, I've realized now that you can be any age and start an organization. Um, but it really kind of just gave me a lift. And as I started to talk to my wife about what I wanted to do and, like, obviously get off the road and, and our, our kids were so young and kind of changed the trajectory of our family, we just had a lot of robust conversation around it. And then at the same time that all that was happening, I read a book called The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, and it pointed to all these overseas solutions for virtual assistants. And everywhere I looked, I couldn't find a domestic, a U.S.-based player for virtual assistant services. So my wife and I started this journey of, like, researching and asking, you know, you know, successful business people, hey, what, you know, what do you think about this idea? And, and literally everybody that had a successful business that we talked to, they said, you need to leave your job and do this. Whereas my family... My friends, they all thought we were nuts to abandon our jobs, to use our 401k money as our startup capital. Uh, so we did that. We took six months. We did a lot of due diligence. And in October of 2010, actually, ironically, today, 10 years ago, I know that that dates this, but it, it was October 1st of 2010, we walked in and gave notice to our employers within about an hour of each other. Wow. And then 60 days later, in December 1st of 2010, we were on our own payroll starting our company of virtual assistant services. So it, it was a year long journey to get to that place, uh, to where we could start, uh, our, now the organization is known as Palais. But, uh, it was, it was, um, it was just time in our life. I was, I was exhausted and I was ready for, to make a change and really build a meaningful asset for my family. That's fantastic. And, uh, I actually have uh, used Belay and had a phenomenal experience. I've been working with my assistant, Kimberly, for over six years uh, that you helped me find. So I, I could not be uh, a bigger supporter of what you're doing. Uh, that's awesome. I'm thrilled that we're served you well. Um, that's really, that's the whole meaning behind Belay, actually. Uh, Belay is a rock climbing term if you're not familiar with rock climbing or mountain climbing. And our whole goal is to serve and to support capacity to our leaders or those those folks, our clients, as they climb higher and we're to support capacity to them. And that's what belaying is. It, it's this element of 
helping mitigate risk while someone goes after climbing something or to achieve something. So that's cool that we've been able to do that for you. Well, today we want to jump into uh, the idea of working from home, which I guess is, you know, kind of what your company does, working with virtual assistants, but also your company, uh, I think you have about 60 staff internally uh, who are working from home. So tell us, how did you make that decision to do that about 10 years ago? Uh, it was it was pretty obvious for us that um, I had already been working from home for probably 15 years. I was in sales. And so most salespeople, they already work in kind of a remote capacity. You know, there's always like a headquarters and then you're, you're kind of flying into, you know, so I just was, I actually kind of figured out how to work remote a long time ago. Um, but when we started our business, we were just broke and I didn't want to have an office and didn't want to spend the money on an office. And it seemed silly to do that. So, and we, it was our, our own startup capital. So we said, let's just, you know, work from home. And turns out, you know, as our business grew, we thought at some point we'd have to kind of like grow up and get an office. So we sent a survey out to our corporate team. At that time, we probably had 30 people on our team. And uh, we said, okay, you know, it feels like it's about time for us to, you know, to get an office. You know, who, you know, who, who wants one? And no one wanted an office on our team. They, in fact, they came to work for our company because we didn't have an office. And that wasn't the whole reason for it, but they really valued, they left corporate jobs to, to join our, our corporate job, but they had the flexibility of working from home. So we realized like, okay, the truth is we probably need to, you know, practice what we preach. If we're going to sell a virtual service, we should probably remain remote. And we just decided from that point forward, we would scale and grow our business to, you know, to where it's at today. Um, and right now we have close to a hundred people on our corporate team. So that's our, and I'm one of those. So, you know, W2 folks that really support um, all of our contractors who are the ones that are our, our virtual assistants, our bookkeepers, our social media strategists, and our webmasters. And we have over a thousand of those people on our team today. So wow. it's, um, we do that all remote. We've never had an office, don't intend on having an office. Um, and it's completely scalable. So as you started to think about that from, obviously, you know, you've done this from day one. What were some of the things you thought intentionally that you had to put in place to support people as they work remote? The thing that I was really, I cared about the most was culture. You know, how in the world do you have an office, uh, or, or you don't have an office, but you, you build a meaningful place where people want to come and work. And I struggled through that for a little while. And then I came to this realization is that culture has nothing to do with an office or a physical location. Culture is actually shared vision. And that's, once I figured that out, I just realized we just need to cast powerful vision for why we exist as an organization. And then we want to obviously equip our team with all the tools and resources necessary, but vision casting, why we exist, you know, and, and recreating stories of like how we're really serving people and how we're changing their lives as leaders and how they're really moving the dial and what they, they feel called to do. That was more powerful than anything to equip a remote organization. And so, you know, the, the council I get now, you know, you know, post or we're kind of in the midst of the coronavirus days, people working from home. I have a lot of leaders that call and said, how in the world do I have all these people work from home? And I'm like, you need to get crystal clear about the vision of your organization. Now more than ever, they need to know why they exist and why, why that, that thing that they do that might be mundane on a day to day basis, that thing equals success for the organization and it's connected to a long term vision or mission. And you know, there's some leaders that really get that. And then there's a lot of leaders that don't. 
Can you double click some more on how you do that? Because I think I love the idea of that, but how do you do it in, in practice? Is it uh, a weekly stand-up? Do you fly your team together, um, you know, twice a year? I mean, there's, there's so many different ways to actually live that out. I'd love to hear about yeah. how you how you put uh, process around that. Yeah, for our corporate team, uh, which is about 100 folks, we do have a weekly stand-up meeting on Zoom, and it looks like a giant Brady Bunch. And 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 in that meeting, we're we're talking about several things. One could be, you know, um, our, how are we doing against our defining objectives for the year? Or here's a really meaningful story that um, our sales team talked to a prospect, and this is like how we're going to actually practically apply what we do. And so we'll, we, you know, stories are a really big part of our business. That are sharing a story inside organization, how are, how maybe a um, maybe a virtual assistant in rural Iowa was able to work with a $2 billion company in Chicago, and we gave her the opportunity to really have meaningful work. You know, so there's all these cool stories that we try and gather, and we're an aggregator of stories inside of our corporate team. We do that on our corporate meetings that are weekly. Um, we do, and when we're allowed to meet, you know, right now it's actually quite a challenge to put our team in one room together. Uh, when we are allowed to meet, we typically have our teams together face-to-face four times a year, and we just love on them. You know, we, we bring in professional speakers. We, we do all these like team building things. They, we collaboration meetings. We've got parties into the night. Like it's, it's a fun experience for our team to come and do these things. We do that four times a year. And then our teams, as you can imagine, you know, they need to meet for planning. Maybe our marketing team is planning for the next. They'll meet and we use, um, kind of like in Atlanta that's called Rome, but it's kind of like a WeWork facility. That we have an account. So in most of our corporate team, the hundred folks, they're based in Metro Atlanta for the most part. Um, but while we do have some leaders that are kind of spread out around the U.S., um, you know, but anyway, our meetings mostly happen when they're face to face in Metro Atlanta. So while it's important that, you know, people want to work from home and they're very productive at home, we do think it's important from a culture standpoint to really have that rich connection with people face to face periodically. Got it. And just talk to me as a recovering accountant. That was my, my role previously. Uh, I was an accountant. Do you think of the cost of getting people together as a oh, kind yeah. of direct replacement for having an office? Do those costs kind of contra out? They, they don't. Um, they cost wise, that's a great question. I would say that it's probably 20% of what an actual office would cost. And we spend a ton of money. Like we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars a year for events for our team internally. Uh, but it's, it's probably around 20 to 25% of what probably your real office costs are. Wow. Wow. And talk to me about the, the meeting together. Have you done that the four times together? Have you done that since day one or is it something you kind of came upon later? No, we have, we, we've been pretty intentional to get, we, we, we typically what we do like in, in, a, in a normal year, right. When we're not all subjected to face masks and yeah, you know, pie charts about how everybody's dying and all that stuff. You know, the, 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 the real, the real guts of when we got together and met were, um, we do, we call them one days where everybody comes together for one day and that's twice a year. And then we have two summits and those summits are like two, three days long. You know, they're, everybody walks away exhausted or maybe they pick up a cold because they're just having so much fun and they work really hard and having a blast. You know, they're themed out. So every one of our meetings, um, we decide, like, say, a, a summit will focus on one of our core values, and we'll take one of our core values, and we will just plow it through every bit of the content, and so it'll be themed out based on that. So, like, one of ours is gratitude. 
So we will talk about gratitude from minute one. We'll maybe bring in a speaker that is like an expert on gratitude, you know, and we'll just, you know, completely crush that concept of that core value through that experience. And, and, and that seems like that really is something that our team really enjoys. That's fantastic. I mean, there's no substitute for getting together in person, right? And so to have that and really be intentional about uh, the purpose of the time and, and how to develop culture together, I mean, you know, it's no surprises that you've won numerous awards for the culture at Belay. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite things um, is you know, on every once in a while they're kind of they're more ad hoc, but we'll get instead of having a stand up meeting on a Monday, we'll do like a Thursday morning coffee talk, and everybody will just jump on at 10 a.m. Eastern with their coffee and just kind of like shoot the bull about like, hey, you know, I'm this is where I'm traveling, you know, <laughs> when we can travel again. You know, but, you know, or this is the book I'm reading or something like that. And it's just more kind of casual and that's been really fun or uh, hilarious jokes. Um, or if we have something to celebrate, we'll do like a Thursday afternoon virtual happy hour and you can bring your favorite beverage, you know, and just celebrate what we're doing as an organization. So those are meaningful ways to connect. And then our teams do that too. They'll have their own smaller kind of things that they'll do like that and leverage technology, you know, and so you can have a mix of, professional and, and personal kind of mixed in with your business. And I think there's something really special about people working from home because and it's more so because you get a small glimpse into my house and you get a small glimpse into who I am as a human and you see like a cat walk by or a dog bark and you, you start to get context on people and you don't get that when you're talking to somebody in their, you know, their adult playpen, I call it cubicle, you know, like that's, that's a, you know, you just don't get to know a person in the way that you kind of see and peer into their home. And the kids come and jump on the Zoom call, yeah. and it's not a, an accident. It's actually something that's to be embraced because you get that glimpse into people's family. Yeah, I mean, there is an element of like, hey, please be professional. But at the same time, life happens. You know, I, one of my favorite stories, my old assistant, um, uh, her grandma was in town. And um, it was staying with them. And grandma was on her walker. And was like, you know, 20 feet behind her walking and just as slow as could be across the whole video frame and, and, and couldn't like her, her, you could see grandma's face could not comprehend what her granddaughter was doing. And it was one of the most hilarious things I've ever witnessed because it probably took her five minutes to walk across the back. <laughs> but hey, that's life. You know, you learn, you, you learn about people that way in a, in a whole different context. I want you to take me back to when you started doing this. I mean, today we have Zoom, we have Hangouts, I mean, we have so many different options. But back then, you know, a lot of these technologies went around. What did you actually use from a technology standpoint to manage uh, everything and keep people connected? We, we tried everything. I mean, we've paid a lot of stupid tax, you know, as an organization as we've grown this. But we're fortunate. We're, if this was in the early 90s, we wouldn't have this business. You know, we realized how – technology has created a successful business for us. Um, the fact that we're doing this, I mean, and to be able to get our word out and then kind of our platform and leverage like a Zoom. You know, when we first started, it was Skype and Skype was okay. And, 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 and actually was actually more stable than at the time WebEx. And then we went to WebEx and we paid a gazillion dollars for, you know, frankly, junk software, in my opinion. And then we finally, Zoom finally just kind of came online and it was, uh, was a little clunky to start. But then, you know, obviously Zoom is the beast today and we haven't, you know, obviously now we have a giant enterprise account with them. But, um, you know, we, we've, we've navigated 
as, you know, as things have kind of developed and build remote teams, you know, another, another one that's obviously not web-based conferencing, but it's project management. You know, we leveraged Asana uh, and Basecamp, you know, we've, we've, you kind of have to tell your team like, Hey, we're going to use a particular software and whether you like it or not, you have to work it. And, you know, and so that's what we did. We picked, we started off at Basecamp, we moved to Asana. And then, we, you know, we use tools like Slack for communication and we use Boxer, um, you know, important communication for, for certain things. And we have a CRM application. We were with Infusionsoft and we moved over to Salesforce. Um, yes. and, um, you know, that just, and then of course accounting as your company grows, you go from like a QuickBooks to QuickBooks Enterprise to an ERP solution. So there's, there's things that we've had to just navigate, technically speaking, to kind of grow and scale our business. But thank goodness for Zoom. I mean, um, they've, they've been a, a godsend for us for many, many, many years. Fantastic. Um, I would love to hear about the intentionality that you put behind some of the kind of standard uh, weekly practices. So when it comes to something like a one-to-one with your manager, mm-hmm. uh, is there anything that you had to develop? Because, you know, again, no one was doing this kind of thing. How do you, was it, was there a specific way you did one-to-ones when you started and, and has that developed over time? It has, uh, we, um, so today, um, in my newest capacity, my wife and I, as she's a co-founder as well, we stepped out of the day-to-day of the business and we're co-chairs of our company now. And we appointed a CEO to run the company as of January 1. But the good news is that new CEO, her name is Trisha. She's actually was my assistant. Uh, way back before we ever started the company. And so she's been, she's carried every role in the company and is a really great leader in her current capacity as CEO. But she has, um, had, we've given her the liberty to kind of change up how we do one-on-ones. But in the early days and really for, you know, five, six, seven years in our business, um, everybody had a one-on-one with their manager weekly. And, you know, they, they didn't have to be long, but they had to be a check-in. And, why you might think like, well, gee, that seems a little silly that when you do a one-on-one the right way and you kind of coach around it, you say, Hey, this is what a one-on-one looks like. This is what it doesn't look like, you know, and then you kind of coach and train around the leader as much as the person reporting to, it really becomes a beneficial and necessary meeting. And, um, we, so we did that. We also took a page out of um, the playbook by Pat Lincioni called death by meetings. The book's death by meetings. It's an awesome read, but it, we, what we did was we, as an organization, especially our leadership team, we did what we call our um, weekly tactical meetings, and then we had our monthly strategic, and then we had our quarterly offsites. And that really helped us because then, like, we'd be in a tactical meeting and someone would bring up this really great idea that we needed to, you know, you know, pontificate on and think about and everything else, you know. So we would parking lot that to the week, to the monthly strategic and then if it got too hairy in the strategic meetings, we would say, okay, we'll parking lot that to the quarterly. And then we'll really wrap our head around it and think through what's necessary, you know. And and so by doing that, it actually helped accelerate the tactical on a weekly basis. And we made decisions quicker as an organization. And and one of the things around the death by meeting, I love uh, Lincioni, all of Lincioni's stuff and had the privilege to meet him last year. Um, but it's around creating conflict to try and get people engaged in meetings how do you do that remote? Because I mean, I've, I've tried to develop that in, in person meetings. It's challenging, yeah. but yeah. Uh, is there any tips you would give someone thinking about trying to do that weekly meeting remote uh, or trying to do a weekly meeting remote now and saying like conflict is, is really a key part of making that successful. Sure. 
It, isn't Pat Lancioni great? Like I, we, we spent time with him and he's like this, he's, you know, people don't realize you see him on stage and he's like a smaller guy. He's like a little munchkin. You want to just kind of, you know, give him a hug, you know, he's that kind of guy. Um, yeah. So it, it, what we learned through this and we actually hired their company to one of their, um, their consultants based in Dallas. His name is Rishi. Awesome guy. Uh, but Rishi basically walked us through like how we need to as a remote organization create, um, conflict norms. And so we did, we created three that we trained our whole team on. The first is what we call our TSA rule, which is, you know, if you see something, you have to say something. It's on everybody in the organization to speak up when there's a problem. So that's our first rule is the TSA rule. The next is we, um, we welcome the contrarian, meaning the better solution is generally one that's beat up and discussed and debated. And, you know, even if eight people are all for it, someone on our team will jump on the other side of the table and say, well, what about this? Just so we know we have the right idea and we're not just kind of, you know, high-fiving each other on group think. So we call that one welcome the contrarian. And then the final one that we have as a conflict norm is we call hunt the elephant. So it's that obvious thing in the room that most people will never say because they're too afraid to say because the organization would, you know, not allow it or you'll get fired for saying it. We just say you hunt the elephant. You just pull the elephant and then you shoot it. And sometimes that ends up being me, right? Because when I walk in a room as a leader, I can just say something and a lot of people will go, okay, that sounds like a good idea. No, you shoot me. You know, you just, the elephant needs to be shot so that the better part of the business can grow and be debated and, and you know, and, and accelerate. And so we've taught those three conflict norms. Thank goodness Rishi taught those to us and we kind of, Dot, you know, indoctrinated those throughout our culture as an organization. So conflict, if done right, actually serves a business really wonderfully. We, uh, I have a saying that I've tried to bring into my culture, which is if you see something and you don't bring it up, then it's actually disloyal. You're putting your yeah. own personal feelings yeah. above the well-being of the organization. It's actually a really selfish thing, but to try and, you know, build a culture that does that is really challenging. And so, uh, is, by do you do you run video trainings with people to get those across, or is it more something that you you'd mention at the top of a meeting? How would you go about actually, you know, an organization who's thinking about this? How would how should they try and do it? Is there a, a best way that yeah. you've got? Well, I don't know if that's our if it's the best way. It's just our way how we operate. First off, when you first get here in our organization, you have online training, you have a robust employee handbook that's that's actually meaningfully written. And, and then we test out of those things. So we're, we're teaching them the conflict, you, you know, they'll have a video content. They'll, they'll test out of it. They'll understand kind of the principles behind it. And then we expect our managers to kind of talk about these things through the course of a year and just, just remind people, Hey, these are things that are important to our organization and conflict norms are part of it. You know, we also have a no gossip policy in our organization too. You know, so all of these things that we teach on is, you know, they, they get done with our new employees and then they're reiterated through the course of the year. And then there are times like I'm just proud of like our leadership team and they just lead by example really well. They might be in a meeting and they'll say, you know, I just feel like I need to say this thing right now. And what they're doing is they're hunting the elephant or they'll even say the conf, they'll say the conflict norm. They'll go like, you know, I, I'm just, I'm going to be the contrarian here and use language around that so that they're teaching like, Hey, this is welcome. This is cool for you to do that. So it's in part training. We have a really great training department in Belay, but beyond all that, it's the practical application, and leaders have to go first in teaching those things. Talk to me about when when things aren't going so good. I mean, one of the concerns 
I guess I would have had if I was stepping back at a year ago, pre-COVID, pre-remote working is yeah. how do you have tough coaching conversations with employees that just either aren't working out or aren't embracing cultural norms? How do you do that remotely? Because it's easy to sit across a desk or a table from someone and say, you know, hey, Brian, look, I'm seeing these behaviors and we need to lift the standard. But it kind of feels maybe more awkward to do that over yeah. a video call. Uh, you know, when you're, when you've had an organization for 10 years, it's just not awkward anymore. This is kind of how you operate. You know, unfortunately, I've had to let people go on Zoom. You know, um, I mean, it's just the part of life. It's, you know, um, it's, if you're new to an organization and you come from kind of corporate world and you're in that environment, it could feel weird. But, you know, a lot of people, they just, they just get over it really quick. And that's what I'm finding is true with COVID too. It's like, you know, when we started working with um, a particular organization, like everybody on their side that wasn't in my company, they were all, you know, they would be on mute and they would have their video off, you know, and we're like, hey, guys, if you want to work with our organization, you need to be off mute and we need to be able to see you because otherwise, you know, you might be doing your laundry or taking a shower. Like we just we need to be able to see you. And what it does is it forces people to be present. And now they're like, I don't know any other way to operate. Like, I, they all love it. And so it just takes training people or teaching people, you know, um, how to kind of work in that environment. And, you know, so when you have a tough or conversation, you just start off by saying, look, we're about to have a hard conversation. This is going to be documented. It's going to go in your employee file or whatever that thing is. Or maybe it's not an HR-related thing. It's like, hey, you know, this is something that, you know, you really – you missed the mark on and in our organization, we, we have this thing we call it, um, a rules of engagement that we train our folks on. And it starts with this idea that we, we fill the gap with trust. And I, I'm not any sort of creator of content. This came from my pastor, Andy Stanley. Like this is what they do at North point. I've been going to that church for 20 years. I see how they operate. They fill the gap of trust, you know, and then the other part of filling the gap of trust is then you go and verify, which means you have to have a card conversation. It's like, you know, Chris, you know, I was expecting this from you. You didn't do it on time. You know, I, this is what you said you were going to do. Like, what up? And then you just kind of get after it. And if we're looking at each other face to face, it's hard to kind of dodge that, you know, and, and, um, you know, so we just, we just navigated it and it's just kind of part of the norm. And, um, it's, it's interesting. It's really hard. It's almost easier to hide in person than it is to hide on screen. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Like the conversation's a little bit more rich, I found, because people are more intentional in how they communicate this way. And it's a little bit more easy for you to you know, be looking at your phone or looking off in the space or whatever. I found that people are actually more present on Zoom. Because you can see them and you can, you know, you get that close shot of people who are in a room, it's easy to kind of hide it some. Yeah. And, and especially on meetings, like, you know, think about it this way, like, you know, let's say that you and I are together and we're having a cup of coffee, right? We're in some, we're in Seattle, you know, drinking Starbucks. Of course, that's what you do there, right? So we're together face to face and I go, Chris, just a second. Hang on. I'll, I'll, hang on. I'm, I'm, I just want to have a really good conversation with you. And then I do this. <laughs> Hold like on, who please. does that, right? Nope. Like what? You never would do that face to face. So why would you ever allow that to happen on screen? You know, and so we just say that, look, if you're in a meeting with us, we see you and you're off mute. Now, if we're on a call of like more than 12, typically we'll say, okay, you can put on mute, but we have to see you still. You know, I'm paying you to be here. 
and you have a job to do and I need you present. And that's, that's what needs to happen. And most people like immediately get it. I was talking with a friend who was a HR director for a, a fortune 500 company last week. And he said it was actually easier letting people go over zoom. Um, uh, what was your experience with that? Oh, it sucked. It's horrible. I mean, letting someone go is terrible just in general, but it's necessary part of being a business owner or running a, a meaningful company. There are times when you have to have a necessary ending. Um, I think that it's important that you make them um, as concise as possible when they're done. I mean, my HR team is incredible. Like they're, you know, unfortunately it happens, but we don't, no one ever should be fired and it'd be a surprise to them. If it's a surprise, then that's the leader's fault. And I get really irritated if I ever hear that happening because, and we know we don't because we document like crazy. We have, um, we call them PIPs or inform, uh, process improvement plans. So, I mean, it's pretty obvious when we're coming to have the hard conversation, you kind of, you kind of know what's about to happen, but it's also important to do it with grace. You know, yes. like you're about to end employment and income in some cases, you know, and it's, it's a serious thing. And so we take it really serious, but you know, where at, where possible it's done at a minimum, ideally face to face if they're in the same town or whatever. But you know, with a virtual organization, it really is often done on Zoom. Yeah. I mean, um, I was thinking in terms of, uh, when you do it in person, you've got to coordinate like the team out of the office. You don't want people having to do the walk of shame, you know, yeah. back past the team. And then, you know, you've got to gather people. It's, it's, there's so many more pieces actually doing it in person than having a, that conversation over, over Zoom because it's, you know, you sit down with them, you talk to them and then it's done, you yeah. know, versus in person. That's actually much harder. Um, so not, well, not that you would prefer to do it virtually, but sometimes it's necessary. It is. I mean, look at it this way. I mean, like, let's say you have a person that could be really upset. Well, they're not going to trash, trash their home. You know, yes. so that ain't going to happen. You know, so there's, there's, there's actually some goofy benefits connected to it. Like, you know, um, and I don't want to sound so calloused about letting people go, but it does, it is part of it. And there is a, a really good way to, you know, make them five to seven minutes long, make it really clear what's going on, make sure that the severance check is already on its way. Uh, the documentation needs to be signed and blah, blah, blah. All the things that you have to do, but just do it rather quick and make sure your team, if you have a team, if you're blessed to have a team, you know, they're, they're ducks in a row and they're ready to go. I would, I think is a great strategy and it's, um, I think you've got to show care for people on the way out the door as well. You've got to, you've got to show yeah. the heart. Yeah. Um, Talk to me for a second about, you know, you, you've been doing this for 10 years now and you've got just so much experience and you've given us some really practical tips today. But talk to someone who's doing this, you know, in COVID and is thinking about, you know, should I do this long term? Should I try and get everyone back to the office? Like, what would your advice be and, and kind of how, what, is, what are some things you would do different potentially in terms of if you had a do-over or, or were starting again? Uh a lot of what I would do different would be around the types of leaders I would hire. Um, we made a decision after paying a lot of stupid tax. What we thought would, what would scale our business quick would, we would, we, we had it in our head that for some reason, like the, the, the right person to kind of lead us forward and scale would be a person that was on the outside, you know, and, and they would have this great pedigree and this, uh, you know, amazing, like they managed a $50 million profit loss and, you know, like, all these things. And we, we, we always kind of like esteemed people outside of organization. Well, I came across a study in Harvard business review where they, they asked 
um, hiring managers and decision makers of organizations that were growing 30% year over year for three years in a row. What did they do to kind of sustain that growth? And over, I, I want to say it was 92%, not 100% on it, but it was over 90% said that to maintain that scale, they had to promote, <coughs> excuse me, they had to promote it from within versus hire from the outside. And if you wanted to maintain, say you wanted to bump along at two to 5% in year growth, you went to the outside and you found somebody to kind of maintain that growth. Well, I mean, I just felt so dumb after I read that. I'm like, we were doing this entirely wrong. And so we decided then to kind of double down on the leadership development inside our organization. You know, when we started looking for leaders or people that wanted to emerge and grow, and what we found is that the speed at which they could get to that role and to have impact was much quicker than bringing somebody from the outside in that actually maybe had a different culture or a different philosophy on the business. You know, they weren't necessarily eating our, our dog food. You know, and so what we found is to grow and scale an organization of speed it, remotely, it really took promoting people from within. And and then, you know, in the off chance, like, you know, we just had this happen where we, we looked internally across our people and we said, okay, this particular role, we, there's just nobody with the skill set. We're going to have to go outside for it. That's fine. You do that too. But for the most part, you just give people opportunities to kind of grow. And you, and you have to be intentional. We call our program internally called the Ascend program. And it's a, it's, it's an invite only from leadership into an, a year long leadership training pipeline program. And we just work with our leaders and we, we pay attention to them. We guide them and, you know, we work with them to, to help them kind of go to the next level. So when the opportunity comes up, it's like plug and play. Right. That's the biggest mistake I've made too. I mean, we hired people at Pushpay from, you know, Amazon and Microsoft and, uh, pretty much without exception, they couldn't adapt to either the pace or just the down in the weeds nature of the organization. And, yeah. uh, pretty much all of them ended up tuning out of the organization over some period of time. And, yeah. um, it, it, it took a huge, uh, toll on the organization because the, that leader is bringing their culture, uh, right. and their, um, experience to, and they expect to be given a lot of autonomy to just operate uh, how they used to operate. And obviously, as a fast-growing company, that's not what you want. You want people to come in and operate how you want them to operate. That's um, right. Any any other tips on how you develop staff? Because I mean, this is just something I'm very passionate about. And yeah. uh, you know, if if I look back at our leaders, I mean, pretty much all of them had never done the job that we hired them to do before uh, they came to our company. Well, I think you know, in terms of developing staff, I mean. It starts with the leaders and the leadership, you know, like early on in our business, I realized that for us to really speed along this, the pace of the business, it couldn't be about kind of the tasks or the, the what or the wins. It had to be about the why, the WHY. And so what I started doing early on is I say, hey, this is why this is important and how you get there. That's the result. But how it gets done, as long as it's ethical. You know, like, surprise me. And so what it did was instead of me telling people, like, here's the, here's the, the really slow way that I know how to do this, surprise me with how you get to the result. What we started doing is just connecting people to the results versus the tasks. And oh my gosh, like, that was just an eye opener for me. Um, so we just started teaching, like, hey, this is why this meeting's important. This is why this project's important. This is why this initiative is important. We, and we just started talking the why versus the what, the when, and the how. And we let smart people that are adults in our company figure it out. You know, and, and another one too that um, 
we we really we figured this out probably within a year of our businesses that especially virtual organizations or remote organizations you have to over communicate um, and we call it breaking the threshold of communication in our organization so you have to get this place where like I'm like Chris I'm gonna where I maybe would tell you one sentence of information I'm gonna go ahead and just tell you three. And then there's going to be a point in the in the future where you're going to go, yep, yep, I got it. And it, you will have got it because I will have over-communicated enough that when I start to say something, you're just indoctrinated into the organization. And But it, leaders have to be very intentional with new, new employees or on a new project to over-communicate. You know, like I used to work in an organization, a sales organization, and, like, I would send, like, my boss an email, and it would be, like, two paragraphs long, and it would have, like, a couple questions in it. And I would just get back like an email that would just say no. Well, what do I do with that? Like, what kind of crap leader is that? You know, and and I'm just not going to work with people like that. And, you know, and people, you know, that want to work in an organization, I'm like, hey, you took the time to write this email. I'm going to be responsive and I'm going to tell you no or but I'm going to tell you what reasons behind it and answer your email and be polite about it. And, you know, I, I want to be a leader worth following, you know, and, and I've, I've had enough examples of really kind of crummy leaders that. I just, you know, I hold them up and I go, okay, I won't do that. That is absolutely fantastic advice. Um, I want to ask one, one last question before we get to the quick fire, uh, which is if I, if I kind of zoom back and I, and I think about, um, some of the leaders I know when, when remote started happening a few years ago, uh, and I talked to them and I said, look, you know, what are your thoughts on this? There's this kind of perception that if, uh, I, if I let my staff work, you know, from home, they're going to be just sitting there playing Call of Duty all day. They're going to, uh, you know, they're not going to be working. Um, you know, I would love, love to hear your thoughts on that because it, it seems like there's that perception, uh, from people around working from home. And it seems to be, especially from people who have just never done it or never had to do it. It seems like a big barrier to overcome. It was, uh, before middle of March of 2020. That was a big barrier to overcome. Now, those, a lot of those leaders are, you know, eating those words and they're working hard from home as well. Um, but I would say, you know, in general, the reason why I hear people justify people working in an office is because they have this philosophy or this mindset that if I can't see you, I can't control you. It's just, it's, it was built on the industrial age that I can go into I can, I can tell you I've researched this stuff, but the truth is like, we're just wired. Like if I can't see you, I can't control you. And so as a leader of a remote organization, you have to basically kill that dogma. You have to say, I trust you even when I can't see you. It's a basic idea that like you're going to work from home. You're going to produce a result. You know what look, winning looks like in your job and I'm going to trust you to execute. And so the other, so what I find is that it really comes down to leaders. They just don't trust their people. That's really what it comes down to. And so they make these goofy arguments like, well, yeah, they're going to do Call of Duty. They're probably doing their laundry. They're probably, what they're thinking about are the things that they would actually do. And they would be too scared to admit that. And the other one too, I see, I've got plenty of friends that own companies and they've built these crazy busy uh, building offices and they've spent millions of dollars on these buildings, right? And guess who wants everybody back in the office? The guy that paid for it. <laughs> you know? So they're like, you know, you got to come back to the office. I paid millions of dollars for this. But they can't say that because that sounds goofy, right? So instead they say, well, you know, I don't want you playing Call of Duty from home. You know, it, it really it just comes down to 
Um, in a lot of instances, those leaders don't trust their people to work from home and produce a result, and they paid a bunch of money for an office, office that's sitting vacant. Mm. And I've seen that. Just I've just literally witnessed that over six months, the honesty that's come from leaders as they've kind of navigated this, and they're going, okay, I really think that I need to send 50% of my workforce home long-term. I'm going to um, wind down my office, and I've, I've got to rewire who I am as a leader and how I trust on my team to execute. You know, it's it's been a really um, it's been heart surgery for a lot of leaders this year. Could uh, just speak to me as as an individual for a second, not not to me as a leader. Uh, I mean, having worked worked from home for ten years, just anything that you would you know, like what what works for you? Do you have a schedule or routine you try and do? Yeah. Um, it seems seems like we're all trying to adjust. I'd love to hear your advice. Um, I I do my best to. Um, have set hours. I'm very scheduled with my calendar. You know, like I, I know um, kind of the rhythms of my energy. You know, in the morning, I'm much more, I can communicate better. So I'll write content in the mornings or if I need to do that or, um, and then it generally around, I need to eat lunch because I get kind of hangry, you know, so I'm, I'm really scheduled about my schedule. And then I protect the time with my wife, who's also a co-founder in our business. And and also, you know, my kids, you know, and kind of their school schedules and after school activities and things like that. I'm really protecting of my time because I didn't want to create a company that I would, you know, I didn't want to leave in a situation where I was killing myself working for somebody else and just do that again and replicate that for myself. Like, what's the point in that? So I've been really intentional to kind of really manage my schedule. My, my assistant really helps kind of protect my time with all of that. Um, but knowing kind of the energy levels, you know, like I need a nap in the middle of the day. So like I generally will take about a 30 to 45 minute nap literally every day. Um, in fact, when this is over, I have time scheduled to, to crash out for about 30 minutes and I'm not embarrassed by that at all. Like I, I actually find that my afternoons are so much more powerful when I have that little shutdown of my brain. Cause I'm thinking about all these things. And you know, some people might see that as a weakness for me. I just see it as an incredible, powerful lift. You know, no, I I have a saying that uh, good managers manage time, great managers manage energy because yeah. there's no use working longer hours if you can't be productive in that. And extraordinary managers take naps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, I just um, you just kind of have to know who you are as a person and kind of the rhythm of your energy. And I and and for me, it's very important to kind of you know do that. I also protect my time. I I'm now in a position where I don't have to work Fridays, so I don't. And I, I choose to do the things that are important for me or for my family or for my wife, you know, as we, you know, and um, that wasn't the case in startup. It's really hard. You don't have that liberty. But now because our business has been successful, thank the Lord, you know, we we're able to do things like that. Um, in terms of having a, a meaningful work environment, you know, this is my office, you know, and I, I'm actually really inspired when I come up here, but it's separate from my house. You know, I actually have a dedicated workspace and I've got a high speed connection and my camera works great and, you know, it's soundproof, so I don't hear the dog bark, and I don't hear, you know, all the craziness with the kids outside or whatever, and it allows me to really remain focused as a leader. I think that's important for working from home. And then it's, um, I think it's important just to also see people, too. You know, like, go and have lunch with a friend, you know, or invest in someone's life, you know, like, face-to-face and do that. Um, that's an important part of working from home because it can feel isolating if you're not careful. Uh, especially, you know, if you're working in a remote organization, it can feel isolating. So it's important that you have meaningful personal connections with people face to face too. 
That is great advice. Brian, let's, uh, let's jump into the quickfire segment. We've got five questions here. We're going to uh, try and uh, get through these reasonably quickly. So uh, let's jump into the first question. The first question is, what is the most impactful leadership book that you've ever read? Uh, gosh, um, there's, can I say more than one? Absolutely. Okay, well, The Motive by Pat Lynchini is a really great read. I really do like that. Um, there's a book, it's an older book. Um, it was written by um, a guy in Canada. It's called The Orange Code. It was a story of how ING Direct, as a banking organization, took their their institution and basically brought it to the United States. And that book was so remarkable in terms of their approach for how they're going to change and become this organization. And I just love the book. It's called The Orange Code. Um, that's one of my favorite books of all time. And then, um, you know, a book that's really helped our business as a whole is Story Brand by Don Miller. We really apply those principles um, throughout the organization at Belay. And, um, yeah, those are three that are kind of top of mind for me. I'm going to order that Orange Code book. It's on Amazon right now. Yeah, it might uh, be. Uh, you might have to buy it from some antiquated bookstore because I don't know. I mean, it, it's a great read if you can get a hold of it. Fantastic. Okay, second question. If you could only use one word to describe your leadership style, what would it be? Uh, I'm, I'm a challenger. You know, um, you know um, I'm an Enneagram 8. You know, and, and, uh, and right now, I mean, that's like, you know, Enneagram's like Christian astrology, but you know, like the, the truth is I am that person. It really does, you know, suit who I am. And it, I don't, I don't challenge just for the sake of challenging. I challenge because I love to see people develop, including yes. myself. I love personal development. And one of the, my greatest reasons for my why, for why I like to lead people is because I love watching them personally develop. And to do that, other times they have to be challenged and they have to, you know, they have to be shaken a little bit in order to grow. Fantastic. Okay, the third question. What is your biggest distraction working from home? Biggest distraction working from home would probably be Fox News. Turn <laughs> it on, check it out for a few minutes, and then 20 minutes has gone by. Yeah, you know, we're in this goofy debate cycle right now, and it's just, it's just, you know, the giant crap sandwich. So it's, yeah, we'll see what happens in a bit long term. But right now, Fox News is probably the one that I'm distracted by the most. Okay. Number four, tell us about your biggest failure and what you learned from it. Biggest failure and I've learned from it. Why don't I just tell you my biggest sin? Sure. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, biggest failure inside of our business. I'm going to be honest. I mean, it was, it was that we, I've made poor hires that, like I mentioned to you earlier, where were ones where I thought they were going to be in come in like the savior of our business and, and that those created detrimental impacts to our business that we had to overcome. I mean, they were really big. They ended up being failures. And, um, it's something that uh, thankfully I've learned from. But it, it definitely it impacted our business in a negative way for a season of time. Okay. And the last question, feel free to take a few minutes if you want to elaborate on this. But um, one of the things I, I believe is that, uh, you know, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to forget a lot of the what do we do and the trophies and the accolades. But you know what we won't forget is uh, how people made us feel. I'd love to hear um, uh, a time when someone believed in you as a leader when maybe they shouldn't have. So my old boss, um, so the company that I left um, was a church construction company, and they were a 42-year-old company at the time. They built over 700 churches around the United States. Wonderful family that owned it. And my boss, the CEO, his name is Bill. And um, when I, as the season kind of approached that I felt like I was, I needed to go do something else, um, Bill 
was one of the most kind leaders that I've ever seen in the sense that he, he understood exactly what I meant. And he, he said, you know what? I really think you're going to be a great success. And at the time I was scared to death, right? So to hear words like that, like when I'm about to leave something that was perceived as very stable, use all my money as my startup capital and do this. And to hear a guy like that, I'm leaving. I'm the, I'm I'm on their leadership team of this business, right? And to hear him say, like, I think you're going to be really successful. Like that gift of words and encouragement and then being there for me afterwards, like as we got started and like, hey, how can I pray for you? And how can I specifically pray for you? And then ask me meaningful questions and go, hey, did you think about this? You know, and as you're starting up your business to consider this or, you know, or, hey, this is something I messed up. He would do that for me. Um, now I've had mentors and, and, and had, you know, men in my life that have been very intentional to tell me. But in that particular instance, that was one of the most gracious, kind things I've ever seen because he could have folded his arms and said, you know, buddy, get out of here. You know, like a, what you would think of a typical employer and he was the exact opposite. And it just, you know, it just meant the world to me. And, and um, you know, fast forward 10 years, like last month I was backpacking with him in Wyoming. You know, wow. we've just become really meaningful friends through that. And, um, and he's like a great cheerleader. You know, so I think that there's a really great way when you have somebody in your organization that you know has got incredible talent and they're going to go start something new. Rather than resist them or make them feel bad or awkward, just encourage them into their future. You know, that that's something I've learned. And when someone comes to me and says, I, I really feel like I want to go start something, I'm the first person to say, you got it. How can I help you? Like, I don't assume that anybody's just going to work it forever, you know. And, and, and I love it when people want to take the risk. That's the beautiful thing about our country. And it's the beautiful thing about entrepreneurship in general is that there's a lot of risk for the opportunity for reward. It doesn't mean that it gets guaranteed. And, um, you know, to have a leader that can walk alongside you and go, hey, I support you, I'm encouraging you, I think you've got what it takes. Um, that just meant a world to me personally. Well, Brian, what an absolutely phenomenal note to end on. Just thank you so much for spending some time with us today and sharing your learnings and experience. And uh, I know our audience is going to love hearing this and applying it to their business. So thank you for your time.